Welcome to The Voice of Retail for the week of February 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc from M.E. LeBlanc and Company, Inc. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada and sponsored by Stream Commerce, North America's fastest growing Shopify Plus agency. Learn more at streamcommerce.com. In this episode, a feature interview with Craig Patterson, founder and editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com and president and CEO of Retail Insider Media, Inc., Craig is uh, the author of the 2018 Canadian Shopping Centre study with uh, Retail Council of Canada. Retail Council of Canada issued that uh, just at the end of 2018. We're going to talk about that survey and the findings, uh, the health and the state of the nation and shopping centres in Canada, and also uh, talk a little bit about the current state of retail and about the future of shopping malls here and around the world. Then we'll dive right into the retail news of the week, including updates on uh, Payless, Walmart, Amazon, and much, much more. So let's uh, listen now to my interview with Craig. Craig, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How about yourself? Fantastic. Let's dive right in. So uh, before we jump into talking about retail, let's talk about you for a bit. Um, Tell us a bit about yourself. I I know enough that you're a lawyer by training, and not unlike uh, my last guest, Ted Starkman, you you're not a lawyer anymore, but uh, that's where you started. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you developed your passion for retail. Oh, it's interesting. I, um, ever since I was a little kid, I was uh, interested in stores and cities and sort of, I guess you'd say, urban development. And, uh, uh, you know, I, as a little kid, I was playing hockey in Minneapolis, and my aunt, uh, who'd done a lot of work there, said, you know, you've got to go check out downtown Minneapolis. They've got these amazing department stores and shopping malls. It doesn't anymore, unfortunately, by the way. Mm. Downtown Minneapolis has sort of collapsed. But uh, in the 90s, you know, it was uh, quite an interesting place. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. I went through Saks Fifth Avenue and I went to a store called Dayton's, which was uh, a terrific, uh, you know, higher-end, uh, eight-story yeah. high department store. Yeah, I and remember I Dayton's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I found it so interesting. And, and I don't even know why. It was just I was going through there fascinated. And um, so, you know, I've always kind of followed it as a hobby. Throughout university, I did a business degree. And, you know, I specialized in marketing. And then I got the first West Edmonton Mall uh, scholarship for, for retail. But, I mean, the retail studies were pretty minimal. And then I went into a law school because I didn't know that I could really have a career in the world of retail you know I was always pushed oh you know you gotta get a professional degree you've got to you know, be a doctor lawyer engineer whatever you know that's it's sort of that stereotypical you know parent telling you sort of thing not realizing that you know some people in retail make you know six figures and are doing very well so uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know I start so you know I, I was a lawyer in Vancouver um, I just started writing about retail and I was doing it even anonymously I just didn't want clients to know you know how excited I was about luxury retail because I was dealing with a lot of clients that were you know of lower incomes and whatnot that was sort of uh, you know what I was working with and uh, um, retail insider just exploded it uh, no one was really uh, you know, reporting on day-to-day activities exclusively in retail. Um, my career changed. You know, University of Alberta uh, found out, you know, as an alumni, and they uh, they had a significant retail school by then. They brought me into, they hired me to uh, come in and do uh, research and work with students there, which was uh, terrific. And uh, um, things just progressed. So, you know, fast forward to today now, um, you know, we've got more of a readership uh, as a trade publication in the industry, I would say, than you know, any other, or at least, you know, in a day-to-day type of publication. But, uh, you know, and there really aren't any others out there that are, you know, focusing specifically on, you know, what latest stores are opening. Yeah, your coverage of the retail industry in Canada, and uh, you also touch around the world, it's very impressive. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly a, a first read for me each and every morning. So congratulations on building that. I mean, you, you, you know, there's, 
I think there's a big part of the retail industry that is helped by uh, the media that has knowledgeable people reporting on the retail scene. And, and why shouldn't there be, right? It's a second, it's the biggest single uh, private sector employer in the nation, and it's such a big part of the economy. So um, yourself and, and there's, you know, folks from the main, uh, main, let's call mainstream media, though it's not a great term, um, who, who are very educated and cover do a great job covering the retail beat. So uh, congratulations on building that. I had to chuckle when you were describing as yourself as a young little kid interested in urban development. I guess that, that should have been assigned to everyone. Not, not a lot of kids are interested in urban development, uh, but there you go. I think that's true. I mean, from building Lego to, you know, but if you think about it in cities, quite often the way that we view cities is the retail that's around, be it, you know, there's, mm-hmm. you drive, drive by a shopping center, you're going down a street and it's got, you know, some sort of a new, you know, food concept or, you know, glasses. There's a lot of optical stores that have been opening, say in Toronto, for example. So sure. it is changing the face of neighborhoods. I mean, I wanted to also write about, um, you know, residential development and, and overall, you know, city developments, but a lot of uh, realtors and, you know, people selling real estate already do that. So that was one of the reasons I just kind of focused on the retail part. So um, I came in as an outsider, I, I would say, in terms of, uh, you know, it's called Retail Insider, but I only had a few connections. I never <laughs> even worked in a store. So, uh, you know, certainly when we started, I would not have been qualified to call myself a retail insider. I don't think it was just, you know, a, a name to uh, hopefully get people interested. <laughs> well, well, and that they have. Let's let's move on to talk about this study that you uh, authored, and it's uh, it's published in cooperation in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. And it's not the first one; I think it's the third. Great study on the um, state of the nation in Canadian shopping centers. And looking at this study, one of the things that jumped out to me. Uh, is this review of year-over-year change of productivity. And what I found um, borderline shocking, but very interesting certainly, is that there's not a lot of red on that page in terms of decreases. There's only one or two, maybe three malls overall who have less productivity than they did before over 2017. And, you know, Yorkdale, what, 15% uh, lift in, in sales productivity. Tell me about what you think is going on and it's not an isolated example. I'm looking at, what, 20, 30, 30 malls on here, and only three of them have got a decrease uh, at all. What's what's going on? Because it doesn't seem to be uh, echoed around, or certainly maybe not in the U.S., but tell me tell me what you think is going on that causes that kind of productivity increase. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, those numbers are for reporting retailers. So, you know, I noticed that, you know, it was, what is it, uh, Southgate Center in Edmonton, Polo Park in Winnipeg, and the Halifax Shopping Center. They were the three that registered the uh, the slight decreases. They weren't even that great. Mm-hmm. Um, we speculated, mm-hmm. you know, they all lost Sears uh, stores mm-hmm. and anchors. You know, did that have an effect? Right. It may not have had a huge effect because I don't know how much of a draw Sears was for, you know, shopping centers generally. I mean, I'm sure it was somewhat of a draw, but certainly not, you know, compared to say, you know, the incredible new food hall that's opened at Upper Canada Mall in uh, in Newmarket, where I think foot traffic in the mall went up 25%. So, wow. you know, it's, uh, and did it quite quickly and it's maintained its, you know, consistency and popularity. So, um, so that kind of, I mean, that's a great example of how malls, I guess, are innovating this bespoke food court where it's not the usual kind of fast convenience food, but they're taking a very different perspective, right? And I think Oxford is doing the same thing at at square one, right? That's right. That's opening next month, actually, March something, I believe. Um, the food district, I believe, is what it's called. And they're also doing it at uh, Les Gabris de la Capitale. I probably brutalized that and trying to speak French. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> Better um, than me. And that's actually another Oxford shopping center. So um, Oxford, by 
next fall, when that when in Quebec opens, uh, we'll have the only three um, shopping center based food markets of their type uh, in Canada. But there's more coming. I know Cadillac Fairview is looking at doing one uh, in a suburban mall in uh, Montreal, and uh, uh, you know Quadriel now is going to be doing this with. Uh, three or four other properties, I believe. So it's one of the next big trends that we're seeing. And uh, it's not, you know, your typical food court and it's not a grocery right. store. Um, you go into these sort of these environments, these food ecosystems, and, you know, you've got a, you know, a butcher and you've got a cheese vendor and you've got, uh, you know, an interesting coffee concept. You can have a cup of coffee and buy the beans. And I think that, you know, this whole experience, uh, uh, you know, people... We, we eat every day, hopefully, and, uh, you know, having that experience around food, I think, is really, really interesting. And I think that creating sort of a, uh, a, a vacation mentality or an experience mentality will get people more comfortable and I think will also shop in retail stores. So it's clearly working in some regard in making the malls a different – people think differently of them as a destination, certainly for, for food. That's Overall, that's not entirely new. We've seen some great – Restaurants opening up at malls across the country. I think of, you know, Cheesecake Factory opening up at uh, Yorkdale in Toronto, for example. How does it translate, though, for retailers into foot traffic in the store and productivity? I know, you know, it, it probably increases, I guess, what, what would they call dwell time, certainly, and it, and it might increase mall traffic. But what are you hearing from retailers about how that translates into, um, into sales or at least traffic into the stores? Um, that is another trend is full-sized, uh, full-service restaurants and shopping centers. I mean, you know, in the past, some malls have had, you know, Smitty's restaurant or they've had, you know, maybe the Pickle Barrel, which, you know, has certainly uh, upgraded its operations in the last few years to something that's pretty good. And uh, um, I, I think that, you know, all of these food options that are being added to shopping centers, you know, they are seeing increases in traffic, you know, in foot traffic, people coming in for the most part. And, uh, you know, the idea is to make this a destination that people will come to and do various things. And I think that, you know, shopping centers are, in some respect, at least the better ones are becoming community centers. And we're seeing, you know, movie theaters going in. Sometimes there's going to be, you know, a fitness center in the mall. Um, Cirque du Soleil is opening at Vaughn Mills, you know, as an example. That's an entertainment concept. And I know that Bee Fly, which is like a butterfly type of uh, amusement center, I'm not quite sure what you call it, but it's this educational uh, Concept. Uh, I believe they're negotiating for another location, and they'll do a few more as well. There's one at uh, Cotier Trondis in uh, suburban Montreal. I probably brutalize that pronunciation too, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, it really is getting people into the shopping center and then having a pleasant experience. And um, you know, one of the reasons vacation uh, destinations have all that shopping quite often they do is because people are there, and when people are, you know, when people feel like they're there to have a good time, they're going to part with their money a little bit more, I think, than. And somebody who's, you know, number one, stressed out, and number two, uh, you know, doesn't have that inclination. I think that people need to find a place special in order for them to frequent it and then to part with their money. You know, when I think about Canada versus the U.S., let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, the amount of square foot, I think it was 145 million square foot closed in 2018 is the latest number I saw. And, you know, the A malls are doing fairly well in the U.S., but the Canadian malls, uh, from a productivity perspective, uh, and in some ways traffic, I mean, uh, CF uh, Eaton Centre is a, a, a mammoth traffic driver, but the Canadian malls seem to be doing better in terms of productivity on the whole. Is that because, well, I don't, I, my speculation is that uh, you have a lot of very savvy operators in Canada, you've got a long-term perspective, and then you've got a bit of an advantage that you can look south 
and see some of the trends and and if you're smart get ahead of those trends any of that any of those um, things resonate with you as, as when you think about Canadian shopping malls and their success? Uh, well, yes. A lot of shopping centers in Canada are owned by major institutional investors. And, uh, you know, they have to be able to show a return on their investment, you know, to the investors that, you know, own part of these companies. And so what they're doing is investing into, you know, Canadian shopping centers. Not that the United States doesn't have the similar mm-hmm. investors, but we've got, you know, we do have savvy landlords. They're doing you know, great things at the shopping centers. They're trying to look at what sticks. And they're not just looking at the United States. Uh, I would say that, you know, China, for example, would be further ahead than anything in North America. I think that, you know, the landlords I know are traveling literally around the world looking for best examples. They're, you know, they're going to Chadstone in Melbourne and saying, you know, what is Chadstone doing that's just incredible? Because, you know, it's a very, very, very successful mall. It's kind of like Yorkdale for Melbourne. And, uh, you know, I think that's what landlords are doing. We have a lot less retail space per person than the United States. And I do think that that's a factor. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, 23.5 in the United States, it's 16 and a bit in Canada. So it is substantially less, um, you know, in a lot of parts of the United States, it may be over retailed. Uh, and, and that was per capita square foot per person, right? Those, those numbers you just said. That's the, right. Yeah. 25 and 16, right? Yeah, yeah, like I think it was 23.5 and 16, but it's, yeah, a substantial difference uh, on average. So, you know, and even in Canada, we've got a lot of retail space in some cities. So, you know, if we've got, you know, say too much in a market like Edmonton, um, you know, Dallas, uh, we've literally seen entire malls close, you know, suburban Washington, D.C., I can think of a few places where we haven't seen that nearly to the same degree in Canada. There's, you know, only a handful of shopping centers here that have closed. And, uh, you know, I could probably count them on one hand. And, and the malls here in Canada have had their share of shakeups, right? You think of Target coming and going within the span of, you know, 24 months and, and Sears. As you said, Sears in its latter days was a shadow of its former self. But it's not like there hasn't been disruption for the mall owners. Let's, let's talk about, and you just touched on China. I wanted to get your perspective outside of Canada, outside of what's happening in the, in the malls here, even in North America. What are you seeing that's... Um, that's caught your eye. I was at a presentation, for example, and you mentioned how uh, safety and temperature are really interesting components of the success of shopping malls in different parts of the world, whether it's, um, talk about that for a bit. If you look around the world, you know, we're seeing some shopping centers. I mean, I guess I can speak to China specifically. We've got these multi-level entertainment complexes and, uh, you know, the, in some parts of China, the cities have grown so quickly that they never even got a chance to make a main street, you know, the tra- traditional downtown core. Um, right. You know, it's created these, uh, you know, inter- yeah, basically gathering centers for the community to do stuff. Uh, uh, you know, internationally, I think, uh, and again, I mean, I would say Asia primarily is uh, where a lot of this innovation is happening. I mean, Singapore has these incredible... Uh, uh, you know, developments. Uh, most of them are more inner city in Singapore, just given the way it's laid out. It does it barely has suburbs, right? It's so tiny. <laughs> it's, uh, right. you know, it's only a few square kilometers, I believe. So, um, but, you know, lo- looking at these centers, I mean, and do they have department stores? I mean, the question generally about department stores, uh, you know, disruption that we've seen in Canada is we've lost, uh, you know, basically most of the department stores that once uh, dominated the market. In Canada, shopping center, or sorry, well, yeah, shopping centers were developed in some cases by department stores, Woodward's and Simpsons sure. and uh, Eaton's, Eaton's, especially Eaton's. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. Every city had an Eaton center at one time, in their down, quite often in their downtown core. In fact, I'd say more often than not. So, 
Um, you know, that model probably wasn't the best model in terms of shopping centers. I mean, um, you know, would CF Toronto Eaton Centre, uh, if it wasn't there, what would be in downtown Toronto? Would it be a much more vibrant young street or would downtown Toronto not be what it is today without it? Because uh, I don't think that, you know, was it 53.7 million people a year pass through the uh, CF Toronto Eaton Centre? Yeah, it's incredible. Sure. Yeah. It's one of the top in North America, right, in terms of traffic. It's definitely number one because um, number mm. the Alamoana Centre in Honolulu, I don't know if you can even call that North America just because it's, it's a big island out in the Pacific Ocean. You know, I think they said they're at 48 million and they're a very unique centre too. I mean, more of those consumers in Honolulu would be shoppers than at the uh, CF sure. Toronto Eaton Centre. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons for that is is uh, Honolulu is seen as a place that is desirable. You go there, you have a vacation, but people will spend money. And it's funny, I, I've got this theory that I want to explore. Um, I don't think people see parts of Canada as being quote-unquote special. So, you know, if you think about buying something, um, you know, I got this in New York, I got this in Paris. Do people say the same thing about Toronto? I don't think so. I, I think that um, quite often perception of desirability is something that... Uh, uh, I think can also drive sales. And if a place can, uh, you know, f- create something special, be it an amazing store, like, you know, some women love Aritzia and that's their special place and, you know, they'll spend lots of money there. So I think that, you know, translating that into a shopping center or even strangely enough to, to say that about a city or even a country. You just mentioned uh, New York. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, I was in New York in, uh, in January for the NRF big show and it was interesting how on Fifth Avenue, there's some pretty big retailers are leaving. There's many arriving as well, but of course, Hudson Space sold their uh, uh, Lord and Taylor, and and the Gap is moving. But they weren't really flagship stores. They're just big stores. Certainly, the Gap, but it's moving to this Hudson Yards. What have you heard about uh, Hudson Yards? I, I'm hearing some interesting things about uh, it as a destination. I think it'll be open next January or late uh, 2019, and I've heard it's even going to have an entire floor dedicated to pure play e-commerce retailers. Any uh, any thoughts on Hudson Yards? I think Hudson Yards is a really fascinating development because, uh, you know, Neiman Marcus is going in there and it'll be a pretty big store. Um, they're doing some very high-end retailers, but not all will be high-end. So mm-hmm. they are creating a dynamic shopping center environment, but they're doing it in a place that certainly is not traditionally, you know, known for its shopping centers, and that's Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got mm-hmm. plenty of shopping centers throughout New Jersey and Long Island, and, you know, the lots of shopping in the New York area. But, um, you know, Hudson Yards is quite interesting because it is an enclosed building. So, you know, I think the the innovations we're seeing there are terrific. Um, at the same time, I'm wondering how, you know, those hardcore New Yorkers will uh, look at it versus, you know, the high street retail. And you mentioned Fifth Avenue. You know, I think Fifth Avenue is struggling partly because the rents, uh, you know, are astronomical. I know that they're coming down, but some landlords aren't willing to budge. And some brands now are saying, well, do we need to be there? Because... At one time, you know, these street front, um, you know, flagships are having a presence on these streets, be it Bloor Street in Toronto, Fifth Avenue in New York, Champs-Élysées in Paris. Uh, these were kind of like advertising and billboards. But now that we've got e-commerce websites, I mean, the messaging that these brands can push out, you know, can they can do it to a broader audience, not just people, you know, walking by that store. So a lot of these stores, you know, I should say some stores on the streets like Fifth Avenue weren't necessarily making money. They were there as an advertisement. And I think brands are kind of... Mm reevaluating their marketing budget and seeing, you know, is that flagship on Fifth Avenue worth it? Because they can cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to rent per year. Well, think about, think about the new Nike uh, store, Innovation Center, as they called it, just, uh, just open on Fifth Avenue. You know, it's, it's massive, the amount of money that went into that. And, and I visited other, and I'm sure you have on Fifth Avenue, whether it's Lululemon has got a nice flagship, L'Occitane, 
Uh, we went to MedMan, actually bespoke cannabis store on Fifth Avenue, which I think Fifth Avenue still got a bit of panache to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if you're maybe other retailers, you're saying, well, maybe I'll decamp to the Hudson Yards and give that one a go. Um, you know, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic, right? I think New York's going to have too much retail space, especially mm. department stores, because Nordstrom is about to open its women's store on uh, West Fifth. Is it West Fifth? Yeah, West Fifty Seventh. Uh, mm. Hudson Yards is getting Neiman Marcus. I know Lord and Taylor is gone, but Lord and Taylor was not, in my mind, a uh, um, you know a phenomenal department store overall. It had a beautiful ground floor with the chandeliers, but you know, as as a retailer, you know, it was more like Hudson Bay. I don't think it was resonating, but, you know, Bloomingdale's is renovating. Uh, Saks Fifth Avenue is, you know, overhauling their store. They just opened their incredible Tiffin, Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue is, is putting big three-year-long renovation, I think. Yeah, yeah. Tiffany, um, Bergdorf, Goodman, and Barney's, you know, the three B's on the Upper East Side. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be too many stores. I mean, already uh, Saks Fifth Avenue announced, uh, I don't know if it's closed yet, but they're closing their uh, women's only store down at Brookfield Place, uh, down towards the financial district. So, I, I, I think New York is quite fascinating, but I think that they just put too many department stores. Uh, we'll, I, I think the best will win, but I don't know. It's going to be very, uh, very challenging. I, I think Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus are in for a surprise. Well, you've been very generous with your time and, and fantastic insights, uh, as always. I think you and I could probably talk for hours, and I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about uh, other things about retail. But thanks for this uh, interview talking about the uh, Retail Council of Canada's 2018 shopping center study, which you can get on uh, right on retailcouncil.org. How do people get a hold of you, Craig, if they want to reach out to you? Oh, if you want to email me, I'm at uh, Craig, C-R-A-I-G, and then the at symbol, and then uh, the words retail, and then a hyphen, and then insider.com. Well, very good. Thanks again, Craig. Uh, great interview. Swell talking to you, and I uh, look forward to catching up uh, real soon. Thank you so much. Be sure and join us next week in the Voice of Retail podcast where my guest will be Paula Courtney from Wise Plum to chat about just what are they thinking about Canadian consumers online, bricks and mortar in the breakthrough study published in cooperation with Google by Retail Council of Canada, authored by Paula and her team, Understanding the Canadian Consumer. She'll be talking about highlights from that survey and research, voluminous, 240 pages uh, in detail. So lots to talk about. Uh, and another very special guest, I'm not going to tell you who, um, it's a voice from the past for those who are familiar with Retail Council of Canada. I'll give you a clue. We're going to be talking about a bunch of things, including destination tourism and retail. So uh, there's a bit of a clue for you. So for now, let's uh, let's go move on to the news. Um, three late-breaking stories, so to speak, coming out tonight, all from the Globe and Mail, actually who's breaking a bunch of stories tonight. Uh, first of all, Hudson's Bay has announced that they are going to close all their home outfitters, 37 uh, across the country, and uh, apparently 20 uh, sacks off fifth. Uh, they're discounting banner in uh, off-price banner in the U.S. Didn't say that they were closing any of those in Canada. Ah, it's an interesting moment for me, actually. I was there for the, uh, for the creation of of home outfitters, I was in those meetings and and helped uh, help part of that launch team uh, back in my time at Hudson's Bay. So uh, a farewell to um, to home outfitters. And, you know, really continued streamlining of the business by Helena Folks, the uh, the new uh, CEO who continues to streamline the uh, the sale of the Lord and Taylor flagship uh, Fifth Avenue store went through uh, to WeWork, so that I think freed up about eight hundred million dollars for. Um, 
and reinvestment into digital. Uh, you know, probably Hudson's Bay closing these uh, home affairs doesn't make much of a financial dent, and that's one of the things that uh, Marina Strauss talks about in the Globe Mail article. But it's uh, notionally uh, a very important thing to do as she streamlines the business and continues to signal uh, that she's there to mean business. Moving on to the second article, a feature on Loblaw. They just released their Q4 numbers, uh, which uh, had some good solid numbers of 1.22 billion, up from 10.99. Uh, same store food sales rising 0.8%. Uh, and interestingly, some uh, numbers around e-commerce, $500 million in e-commerce, which is about 1% of their sales, according to the article, this uh, from the Globe and Mail. Uh, so that pretty much lines up with what uh, the overall, you know, there's there's fairly representative. So it pretty much lines up with what the industry's been talking about, about 1% uh, e-commerce sales. Uh, they're up to 670 locations, actually, for pickup. And, of course, they also do uh, Instacart, and they're testing uh, cannabis, uh, medical through Shoppers Drug Mart, and recreational, they're taking it for a test drive in Newfoundland. So uh, I guess the other interesting part was how they are shifting some of their assortment pricing to uh, pricing strategy to EDLP. Uh, and uh, Sarah Davis in this article quoted as saying that uh, they wish they could have sold a little more, but what they did sold, what they did sell, they made some good and better margin on it. Uh, third, uh, and this breaking news segment, uh, is uh, Kushtard and Canopy Growth timing up, tying up together, teaming up together uh, to launch uh, recreational cannabis in Ontario. And, you know, interesting, I guess we'll get more details on this uh, tomorrow, but it sounds like there's a deal through with Canopy and Kushtard, and they've struck a deal, or Kushtard has, with one of the 25, one of those 25 lottery winners, uh, who will in turn be launching a Tweed, which is Canopy's retail brand. Uh, store in London, Ontario, and I guess it's got enough uh, past or it's passed the mustard enough from the uh, Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, who's the the arbitrator of such things, uh, whether it uh, suits uh, the licensing requirements, first of all, uh, in and around uh, ownership, because the 25 had to not or had to be in full ownership or controlling ownership. So I guess it's passed because it's on to the 15-day period of uh, consideration in the municipality. So Keep a close eye on that. No doubt we'll be talking about that more uh, next week as more details uh, become available. But uh, Canopy and Kushtard taming up together, certainly uh, an interesting development. Uh, so those are just out today. Actually, busy day uh, towards the end of the day. They did not make it. These stories did not make it into the Retail This Week uh, e-newsletter that uh, will come out tomorrow. That's, uh, that was done and off to the uh, off to the cyber printers, so to speak. Uh, but uh, we will cover it as those stories evolve next week. So let's move on to retail this week. Uh, these stories taken from the Retail This Week e-newsletter, published 51 weeks of the year by Retail Council of Canada. I put that together each and every week, looking at uh, stories, top stories from retail this week. Um, it, uh, by the way, kind of goes to bed, so to speak, by about 5 o'clock on Thursday night. So anything that happens post 5 o'clock, uh, is uh, late breaking news, but this podcast gives us the opportunity to talk about that, even though it doesn't always make it in to uh, to e news. Uh, so in this uh, week's e news, we're talking about a couple of interesting stories: the end of ownership for fashion. So McKinsey published a, a great and in depth document, and again, the links are in this uh, this news retail this week e newsletter, but you can also find it, I'm sure, by going to uh, McKinsey and Company's site. A, a view of apparel 2019. Uh, what it looks like, and you know, they they make some interesting, um, interesting points around the shift from ownership and new models 
uh, where consumers are looking for both variety, sustainability, and affordability. Uh, and, ta- and it says the resale market could be bigger than the fast fashion market within 10 years. So fascinating. And uh, talk about the rental market as well in this document. I, I, I think of uh, Canada's own rent frock repeat, Christy Weber uh, and her team. And in fact, uh, tune in mid-March. I'm going to be doing a feature interview with uh, Christy Weber talking about rent frock repeat, award-winning uh, Canadian uh, e-commerce site and how they're adopting and, and changing their business model uh, as they see the market uh, shifting. Uh, we also talk about, uh, let's see, uh, how to sell a $1,000 coat without having a sale. This is from National Post feature on uh, Canada Goose. Um, kind of a, uh, you know interesting article. Um, it reminds me how on before and after Boxing Day, the lines at Yorkdale for the Canada Goose store were long, and there's no sales on. So this uh, kind of talks about how uh, Danny Reese here from Canada Goose talks about how uh, they're enjoying the moment, I guess you could say, uh, and they're, they choose to cut through the noise with a high-impact product moment. Uh, so check that article out, that from the National Post. Uh, pay less shoe source filing for bankruptcy, not news at this point of the week. Uh, it was bigger news at the beginning. Uh, not entirely surprising. It is their second uh, run at it. But I guess the speed uh, certainly uh, took everyone a little off uh, guard, I suppose. And then uh, they also announced at the same time they're closing all 248 stores in Canada. Of course, our first thoughts go out to the, those employees and wishing them the best in terms of finding uh, new employment. I think they got 2,400 employees across across Canada. Um so I think that's. I think they're done. Uh, there's lots of movement in the shoe business and the shoe category. In fact, I was checking out Stats Canada numbers, and I think shoe footwear, I should say, is was up, not down. Uh, but it's a very competitive market. We knew it's competitive because, of course, Payless. But also thinking back a couple of years ago to Zappos, who tried to launch in Canada, that didn't work. Shoes.com. Hey, listen, it's a very competitive category. Uh, lots of innovation. Uh, so we wish again the 2,400 employees well. Uh, article here, that was from the Globe and Mail. Uh, article here from Retail Insider about, uh, it's a good feature article on M&M Food Market and how they're expanding retail operations, move partnerships and new storefronts recently. We talked about their uh, their partnership with uh, with Rexall, uh, where their, some of their frozen products are being available, available in Rexall stores. That's a nice tie-up for them. Uh, good article in uh, the Globe and Mail from uh, or about Aritzia, talking about... Uh, attainable to the vast majority of the population. It's interesting. Aritzia is a great business, both uh, in Canada and around the world and the U.S. They kind of consider themselves a luxury retailer, as, as they would say, but also, as uh, Brian Hill would say, the uh, president and CEO, but also consider themselves approachable. So they've really done a great job of straddling those two, and you can see that in their numbers. Uh, just touch on a couple of videos, and again, these videos can be found, or links can be found in Retail This Week e-news. One from uh, interviewing the former... Uh, CEO of Whole Foods, uh, Walter Robb, and he just talks about um, how, I guess in many ways, Whole Foods started, or was in the, certainly in the vanguard of, of, of making uh, it uh, mass, is all the organic, um, and how important organic and sustainability is. Well, fair to say, Whole Foods was way ahead of the curve uh, in that, so he just kind of sees what's going on today and looks back and, and says that a testament to a, to a clever business strategy for sure that Whole Foods had. Another article, or sorry, video here from US, from CNBC talking about US retail big year ahead. And they kind of take a look at the um, recent numbers, including the Walmart numbers, 
uh, and they're trying to put a forecast in for 2019 and thinking, uh, I think the NRF actually put out a forecast that uh, the year was going to come in about 3.8 to 4.5-ish, uh, which is pretty big considering uh, 2018, and, and that was a big year of growth too. So uh, we'll see how that all pans out. Anyway, interesting video there from uh, CNBC. Uh, Amazon made an announcement uh, talking about half its shipments to be carbon neutral by 2030. You know, Amazon's smart company, no uh, no coincidence in the timing that they would make an announcement like that after taking a bit of a bruising in the whole New York, pulling H2Q out of New York. So uh, I don't think it's coincidence they're launching the timing, notwithstanding that. Uh, it's good to see uh, this company launch something called Shipment Zero, which is uh, no details available. This is from, by the way, TechCrunch. Uh, but it really is uh, good to see Amazon uh, looking at those uh, what we call external uh, economic externalities, which are the costs, uh, hidden costs, not so hidden costs that are borne by an efficient business model. So good to see that they're looking at uh, at the impacts of their deliveries. Uh, Walmart. Walmart had just crushing good results. Q4 earnings. Apparently, I think they're... they're their U.S. comparable sales growth, the biggest comparable sales growth in nine years. E-commerce is up 43% in the quarter, 40% for the year. Uh, and this is all uh, in the U.S. And I think I read in another source that uh, the traffic or sales were up about uh, 1% in the Canadian market. Um, maybe that was traffic or, or sales. A lot of it in the U.S. certainly is built on the food business. Uh, they're really competing strongly in, in food and grocery but they're also doing a great job in a lot of other things, uh, particularly uh, BOPUS and bringing in technology onto the floor. Uh, so keep an eye on Walmart. And I guess the thing to think about for 2019 for Walmart, they've got ambitions, of course, to uh, to hit a solid number. But what will really be interesting to watch is uh, what happens in India, uh, which is a big, big uh, market, obviously, and a big bet for uh, Walmart and their growth. Um Speaking of BOPUS, a retail touchpoints article here, 55% of households use Amazon Prime. Uh, that feels actually a bit low to me. Uh, but BOPUS keeps them shopping in stores. So it just talks about how important it is to have a good uh, buy online, pick up in store strategy as a retailer. Uh, and that extends in this article. They talk about, uh, you know, when they talk about BOPUS, making sure you're not out of stock. Uh, I think they're really referring there to kind of pick up within an hour and go after and get it. Um, our quick article here, stunning drop in retail sales leaves Wall Street economists skeptical. So touched on it last week uh, where we were talking about the, the sudden rapid drop in December numbers. The Trump shutdown in the government has some wondering if those numbers are a bit sketch. Certainly looking at the Walmart numbers, uh, Walmart you know blew it out of the park. Uh, so retail continues to be uh, solid in the U.S. Uh, a little bit of news in uh, retail uh, news for retail entrepreneurs. This is covering up a couple of cannabis stories, actually. Uh, interesting or good to see Fire and Flower opening up a location in uh, in the Byward Market in Ottawa, my hometown. And uh, an overall National Post article talking about how uh, cannabis is uh, is working. Uh, the industry is working with uh, different organizations. I guess we touched on this at the beginning uh, in Ontario to work through how uh, to work with the 25, the 25 winners. Uh, so we, there's a couple articles on technology worth calling out for sure. Robots in grocery retail. This is from Progressive Grocery. How to think about robots uh, in your grocery store, I guess, which is an interesting uh, kind of article, so to speak, uh, just to think about that 
as a title, anything from scanning, uh, inventory scanning, and, and it's a good kind of benchmark article to tick some boxes in terms of how to think about uh, robots. Uh, legislation in New York pending, which could actually see, um, which could actually see legislation banning the the retailer's ability to have or not take cash. So that's interesting. We keep a close eye on that trend. That from the New York Times. Last but not least in this section, article from eMarketer, Amazon to capture 47% of all U.S. online sales in 2019. I th- actually think that's down. Uh, and I think uh, that is attributed to Walmart's growth, uh, where they are projecting uh, growing at least 33% to $27.8 billion. That's according to eMarketer, uh, giving them 4.6% share. That's Walmart getting 4.6%. Uh, Amazon at 47%, uh, and uh, wow, those are big numbers. That's still a big spread. Uh, so Amazon still clearly quite dominant in U.S. retail. So that's a wrap for the Voice of Retail podcast for this week. I'm working on planning, attending Shop Talk in Vegas, looking forward to uh, lining up and actually working on it now, lining up interviews that I'll bring live or taped onto the Voice of Retail podcast, and also planning a trip to the MedMen Recreational Cannabis Store, uh, I did have the opportunity to go to their medical cannabis store in New York City, so looking forward to checking out uh, what they do. And don't forget, by the way, about the Retail Council of Canada Retail Cannabis Symposium coming up March 26th. I'm looking forward to hosting that uh, symposium. And in fact, for those still listening after somewhat of a long podcast this week, uh, use my uh, code B space R space guest for $50 off the already Great value, low price of admission. So that's on March 26th, RCC's Retail Cannabis. Lots of great cannabis uh, conferences. This one focuses exclusively, as you would expect, on uh, retail cannabis. Great speakers. Check it out. And if you're looking for more information, retailcouncil.org. I'm Michael LeBlanc, your host from M.E. LeBlanc Company. You can find more about me on www.meleblanc.co. Look forward to talk to everyone next week. A couple of great interviews and the week in retail. So until then, adieu and have a wonderful week.